The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, those of you who haven't been with us, um, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians from beginning to end. We're now in chapter 12, and it's a section that actually goes chapter 12, 13, and 14. It all goes together. Paul has one main theme and argument that he's trying to deal with in a church that he planted. He planted the church at Corinth. He pastored there for almost two years, and then he left to plant other churches, and then he's been staying in correspondence with his church because he loves his church, he loves his people. He was a church planter. He planted many churches, actually. Uh, but he was also more than a, a pastor. He's also an apostle. And uh, so he stayed in correspondence with the church at Corinth, and they were a young church, maybe at this point less than five years old when he writes this letter, and they had growing problems and struggles as their church grew in the midst of a pagan culture, and there was a lot of um, a lot that they were ignorant about because they weren't raised in the Hebrew Scriptures. So a lot of things were new to them, and with that came a lot of immaturity and ignorance. And so Paul writes this letter, First Corinthians, as a corrective to this congregation that he so loved yet was rife with problems and challenges. And one of their greatest challenges or problems they had was their understanding of spiritual gifts. Uh, and all, the nature of the gifts, what the gifts were for. And it is very apparent that it, several began to abuse the gifts or misuse them in a way that was detrimental to each other. Basically, they were being self-centered and selfish with their gifts when the gifts are supposed to be used to serve and edify others. And, and also, it was so bad that it was becoming embarrassing to unbelievers in the nearby community who knew about this church, this these Christians at Corinth, the Corinthian church, who were doing strange and odd and weird things, and so they weren't being a good testimony to the immediate community either. So Paul heard about this. He needed to address it, and so there are huge implications for this. So uh, that's what the theme of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is about, and we're going to look at uh, one verse, verse 10. But before we do, follow along with me to set the context, and I'll read up to verse 10, starting at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12, just to remind us, where we're at. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren or brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant about this topic. I've got to give you more information. You know that when you were pagans, before you became Christians, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one or to each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one Christian is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And to another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another believer is the implication. Gifts of healing by the one Spirit are given, and verse 10, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So that's the context. We're in verse 10. We've actually, he lists nine spiritual gifts by way of example 
uh, a couple of them he chooses very specifically because those were the ones the Corinthians were abusing. We mentioned at least 19 that are mentioned in Scripture, 19 specific spiritual gifts. Uh, these that Paul chooses are selective by way of example. He chose uh, the word of wisdom, prophecy, tongues, because these are the ones primarily being abused in the Corinthian assembly. And next to that, he mentions ones that aren't so well-known or popular, at least in the Corinthian congregation, because he wants to remind the Corinthians that all the spiritual gifts are important and needed for providing balance in the local church. So we have defined all of the spiritual gifts listed here up to verse 10. Now we're picking up explaining on uh, kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So that's the topic at hand, and that's why at the top of your bulletin, the title of today's sermon is the, the gift of tongues, the gift of speaking in tongues, and actually with that, the gift of interpretation of tongues. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the gift of interpretation of tongues because it's simple, straightforward, and virtually nobody disagrees about what that is. And the gift of the interpretation of tongues was the ability to hear someone speak in tongues publicly. And then the person with the gift of interpretation of tongues was able to explain what the Spirit of God said through that person to others so they could understand it in their own language if they didn't understand the language that the speaker in tongues was speaking. We'll see that and as an example in Acts chapter 2. So that's the gift of the interpretation of tongues. Uh, so we'll look at and the title, The Gift of Tongues. I don't think you could pick a more controversial subject in the Christian world today than speaking in tongues. And I only have less than 40 minutes to talk about it. Uh, a daunting task. Cannot be done. Uh, so we're just going to do a cursory overview and survey, trying to stick to the biblical text as much as possible, just to basically define and illustrate what tongues was in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, because that's where it first was made manifest. And that's where examples of it are. There aren't even examples of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians. The examples are in the book of Acts. So that's where we'll look. Um, I've got nine points there in the outline. So we're going to move. We're going to move quickly. And to me, these are just uh, the main points that a person needs to consider when talking about this very misunderstood, this very controversial topic, and at times this very divisive topic of speaking in tongues. Um, and I realize, being that there's probably 200-plus people here, there are many different backgrounds in terms of your exposure to speaking in tongues. I'm, I'm fully aware of that. Some of you may have believe that you have the gift of tongues. Maybe some of you grew up Pentecostal, charismatic. You're very familiar with it. And again, like I said a couple of weeks ago, maybe some of you are totally unaware of what this is all about and you don't understand what the confusion is about. Uh, so I'm not going to get into those uh, diversities and uh, differences as much as let's just stay simple, the text at hand, and let's just define what it is according to the Bible. Uh, that's going to be my task today. My intention is to not hurt anybody's feelings, but I do want to speak truth, speak it clearly, speak it boldly, and you just trust the Holy Spirit to be your teacher as you have to think through Scripture yourself, grapple with it, and hopefully honor God with the results. So let's go ahead and look at what is the spiritual gift of the gift of tongues together. Uh, before I do that, I, this the following is based on true events. 
in my own personal life. This will help set the context. Give you a little background about me. So I got saved at age 19 in college, and immediately um, I was immersed into charismatic circles. As a matter of fact, probably the first 18 months of my life, I was a charismatic Christian. I was truly born again. And the church that I attended faithfully was Calvary Chapel. And then during the summers, I'd go to the vineyard. Those are charismatic churches. Uh, and at times, on occasion, I go to, uh, I also was from Denver. So when I went there, I went to the Happy Church, which is a Pentecostal four-square charismatic church, very well known. Uh, so that was pretty much the first two years of my life. That was kind of the only Christianity that I was exposed to. Those were my friends. That was my circle. And so I didn't know it as a brand new Christian. I didn't know a whole lot. I was pretty ignorant of the Bible because I hadn't really read it. All I knew, I heard the gospel, got saved was familiar with, with some of the stories. And as a new Christian, I didn't know anything about speaking in tongues at all. But I had a friend who was taking me to, it was a charismatic church, and I didn't even know it was a charismatic church. I just thought it was a church, and that's where I was going. Um, and I remember there was a revival coming to town at uh, this charismatic church in Denver, and there, the, the who's who of charismatic leaders in the world was going to be there all week long, uh, each day of the week, a different one. And so I went to one of those services. I told you about the healing service. But the same night I went to the healing. I'm a brand new Christian. Don't know anything. So I went to this church, went to the service. Uh, I was very excited. And the pastor of the church, at one point in the service, kind of towards the end, said, if there's anybody here who would like to receive the Holy Spirit, then raise your hand. And so I'm like, wow, I'd like to receive the Spirit. So I raised my hand along with many others. I said, okay, if you would like to receive the Holy Spirit, then you're going to be dismissed with one of our deacons, and he's going to take you downstairs, and we're going to talk about how you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and be baptized in the Spirit so that you might receive the Spirit. I'm like, yeah, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I didn't remember, I don't even know what this phraseology meant, being baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. But if it's in the Bible, I want it. I'm a, a brand new Christian. I am a sponge. I want it all. If it's from Jesus, I want it. So we were led by the deacon down the stairs into a basement, basically a small room with four concrete walls and folding chairs. And I'm kind of up towards the front, and we got maybe, I don't know, 50 of us there. And then the deacon got up on the stage and said, okay, I want everybody to stand up because today you are going to learn how to uh, receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized with the Spirit, and be filled with the Spirit. And as a result, the manifestation will be that you will receive your gift of speaking in tongues. I was like, wow, cool. It's in the Bible. That's what I would like. So he had us all stand up and he said, okay, so when I say go, I just want you all to start uh, making noise and moving your tongue and just start uh, making noise with your mouth. And then what will happen in time as I'm praying up here, the Holy Spirit will take over the control of your tongue. And then we'll just keep going until I sense that the Spirit has given us all the gift of speaking in tongues here in the room. I'm like, wow, okay, that sounds kind of weird. This is what I'm thinking to myself. But we all stood up, and he said, ready, go. And then all 50 of us, we just started making noise. Literally, blah, 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 blah just like that, because that's what he told us to do. And after a couple of minutes, uh, he stopped us. He had us all sit down. He said, I sense the Spirit's presence has been here. I believe that uh, virtually most everybody here has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues. And if that's you, and then he gave directions. Uh, if that's true of you, then you need to go home for the next seven days, two times a day for 20 minutes a day, lock yourself in a room or your bathroom or you're by yourself and practice your uh, new prayer language 20 minutes a day all by yourself. And then as you get better and more proficient, uh, it'll just come naturally. And so those of you who believe you received your gift, you may be dismissed. And so virtually all 
49 other people walked out of the room. And I was sitting there in the front in my folding chair thinking, I don't think I received it. This is a, this is a true story. Then about four counselors converged on me. A couple of them were kneeling in front of me. Uh, others were standing, hovering over me. And then one of them opened up Luke chapter 11 and they said, what, what's wrong? And I said, I, I don't think I received the gift. Oh, okay. And then they read this passage to me from Luke chapter 11. Well, and they told me that I need more faith. And they said this, uh, all you got to do is ask. You got to ask and believe. Uh, don't let Satan cause doubts. And they read Luke 11, 9, which says, Jesus is talking. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. And they're applying this to the gift of tongues. Just ask God for tongues. He will give it to you right now. Believe. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So there it is. Just ask for the Holy Spirit, believe God will do it, and he will do it, and it will manifest itself in the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, I'm telling this story not because... Um, it's entertaining. Uh, I am telling it because this is very common. I know this from personal experience that many who have been in charismatic Pentecostal circles or even you can go to YouTube or watch television and see the Pentecostal charismatic teachers when they talk about tongues, this is a very customary way of introducing someone to the gift and how to appropriate it and receive it. Uh, and this is my own personal experience. And there it is. I just got to ask Jesus. And so I, you know, I started asking, praying. And so they, for another five minutes, you got to ask, you got to believe. And they're all praying over me and speaking tongues over me. And then finally they said, have you received it? And I said, I, I think so. So they told me to go home and practice. So I went home. First thing that night, I, I called one of my relatives who was a Christian. I said, uh, praise, the one that actually evangelized me with the gospel when I was 17, told him that I have received the gift of speaking in tongues. I was so excited. And then there was just silence, dead silence on the other end of the phone. Hello, are you still there? Uh, yeah, yes, Cliff. And I had no idea why, why, why is he not being excited with me? Well, I figured that out about five years later. Um, he didn't speak in tongues and didn't believe it was a gift for today. Um, actually, he was a little worried. So anyway, I was thrilled, excited for quite some time, several months actually. And so the next day I followed directions, went into my room, locked myself, and I practiced in the morning for 20 minutes. Uh, just making noise, just like they said, and then did it that evening, and then the second day did it again. And So it was like on the second day, and I'm thinking, this, this is really weird. This isn't working. I, I think I'm forcing this and manipulating this, and uh, this doesn't seem like a, a gift from God. And so I just stopped, never to do it again. Not necessarily, I, I didn't reject it as a false doctrine at that time, but it's just like, maybe I don't have this gift, because I, I just don't, this is weird. I don't understand this. This doesn't seem right. Uh, and it wasn't for another year and a half, maybe two years later, till I came to a different understanding of what the gift of tongues was in the Bible. And that's where I want to take you right now. So let's go ahead and go uh, to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to look at this gift. And we're going to look at these nine points that I want us to think about as we go. Uh, first, we need to talk about, when we're talking about spirit, uh, spiritual gifts and especially speaking in tongues, we have to stick to the Bible. That is the plumb line. That is the truth. That is the source. We can't uh, begin talking about experience, emotion, hearsay, whatever. 
our tradition. It's got to be scripture in all things. So that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, first, let's talk about the terms with respect to speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is not mentioned very many times in scripture, so it's pretty easy to narrow it down in terms of what terms does God use in the biblical writer to describe or explain or define speaking in tongues. There are two main terms. There's a couple others, but they're not used as frequently. The main one is glossolalia. Maybe you've heard it before. Compound word, glossa. Glossa means tongue. The actual tongue in your mouth. And it's used that way in the New Testament. Glossa, tongue. That's the literal usage. It can also be used metaphorically uh, for language. As a matter of fact, those are the only two possible meanings of the word glossolalia in the New Testament. It either refers to someone's tongue, a human literal tongue, or it refers to a human language. A known interpretable, translatable human language. In other words, it never, at least in the New Testament and the way it's used in Paul's day, it never referred to inarticulate, untranslatable babble. It always referred to human language. That's the way the term is consistently used in the Bible. That's huge. That's the main term Paul uses when he talks about speaking in tongues. That term is used in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, 19, 1 Corinthians 12, through 14. Another word used to describe speaking in tongues is dialecto, where we get the word dialect. Dialecto in the New Testament always means a known human language. In Acts chapter 2, glossolalia and dialecto are used synonymously. They're talking about the same thing. And we're going to look at that passage in just a second. So the main terms referring to tongues in the Bible refer to known human languages, not Babble. That's huge. Because that's what I was taught to do. Just babble. As a matter of fact, when I was told that I could speak in tongues, they told me that even though I'm making noise and I don't know what I'm saying or what it means, it's still, it's spiritual language. No human can actually interpret or translate it because it's spiritual heavenly language and only God knows what I'm saying. Which violates the meaning of these two words, glossolalia and dialecto. Okay. Number two, the texts. There are only four main texts that address speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts 19, and then presently where we are, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those are the only four. I want everybody to turn to Mark chapter 16 because the proponents of the charismatic movement or the tongues movement i should say would say well a fifth text actually the priority text they would say is mark 16 verse 17 i don't know if you've ever noticed uh, some of the most well-known charismatic or pentecostal bible teacher or teachers who emphasize speaking in tongues as primary in their ministries whether it's benny hinn or uh, many others most of them are king james only people or New King James, and there's a reason they are King James only, because King James, uh, according to King James, Mark 16, 17, the King James historically says that verse 17 actually belongs in the original of Mark 16. When today, Bible scholars know, it's pretty universally accepted, that verses 9 through the rest of the chapter, 9 through 20 in the Gospel of Mark are not original to Mark's Gospel. 
As a matter of fact, if you have an NIV, probably very clearly after verse 8 marks it and says, the best, most reliable manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. This was added later. And it was. Your NASB may say the same thing. Your ESV might say the same thing in a margin. And that is true. It is undeniable. Typically, a King James Bible will not say that. It won't even give a footnote or a notation most of the time. So as you're reading it, you're just, if you're just a King James only person or a new King James only person, uh, you would have no clue that the best and most reliable manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. But look at verse 17. This is after the resurrection. Uh, uh, and Jesus says, in these signs, verse 17, after the Great Commission going to all the world, Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who have believed. So after you preach the gospel, things are going to happen. And when people become Christians, the following signs will follow. In my name, they will cast out demons. There it is. Anybody who becomes a Christian has the ability to cast out demons. That's the belief. That is the theology. Not only that, everybody who gets saved will speak with new tongues. There it is. And that is the priority verse. That is their staple. That's what they go to. And I would just say that, you know what, Mark... Uh, 16 verse 17 is not in the original of the gospel of mark it was added later so if you remove that then all you have left are the examples in the book of acts and what paul says in first corinthians uh, so that's very important to keep that in mind and by the way even if you want to grant okay we'll let you have marks uh, 16 verse 17 but to say that everybody who believes they're going to be able to cast out demons and everybody who believes will speak in tongues is totally false in light of what Paul clearly says about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. That not all have the same gift, not all cast out demons, and not all speak in tongues. We'll see that at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. Um, So that's just looking at the biblical text. So go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Actually, go to Acts chapter 2 because this is foundational. And I do want to read through Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. Because this is the first time the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues happened. By the way, I believe in the gift of speaking in tongues. And that's an, an important issue because if you say that, well, I don't believe speaking in tongues is for today. I believe that it ceased. Many times I will be labeled or people who say that will be labeled as people who don't believe in speaking in tongues. No, I believe in speaking in tongues. It was a real gift. It was important. God used it. Part of laying the foundation, the Apostle Paul spoke in tongues more than any of the Corinthians. It was vital. It was a sign gift. I just don't believe it's happening today. The same, I don't believe ongoing new revelation through prophecy is happening today. I don't believe there are apostles today. Just because I say the gift of tongues is not going on today, people might also say, and they have, that, well, then you don't, they don't, that church doesn't, GBF, they don't believe in the gifts. I've heard that. GBF doesn't believe in the gifts. What they mean by that is GBF doesn't believe the gift of tongues is for today. So that's not really fair to say that. We believe in the gifts. I believe in all the spiritual gifts. And I believe some operated at different times than others. Oh, yeah, GBF, they don't believe in the Spirit. I've heard that one too. No, we believe in the Spirit. They don't believe in being filled with the Spirit. Oh, yes, we do. They don't believe in being baptized with the Spirit. Oh, yes, we do. They just have a different definition by all those phrases and terms. So we believe in the gifts. We believe in all of the gifts. We believe they are vital. They are important, used by God. But let's look at this foundational passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus just ascended into heaven. He left his 12 apostles and some faithful followers. There's 120 of uh, faithful disciples. They're praying. 
for God's will. They are in Jerusalem. And then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, shortly after the ascension of Jesus Christ, God begins the birthday of the church with the power of his Holy Spirit. And it is described here, the first day of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, this was an Old Testament feast, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Fruits, the, the Feast of Harvests, goes by many names. They were all together in one place, 120 believers, 12 apostles plus others, and suddenly, unexpectedly, they weren't praying for this. It happened, and they're kind of caught off guard. They were all in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It, it was just this thunderous tornado-like sound. That was God making a move from heaven. So there's a noise. So it's something they hear. All their senses are involved in this experience. They hear something from God. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. The walls are probably thundering. Could have been frightening. Verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues. Now, they heard something amazing from God, and now they see something amazing from God that defies human explanation. There appeared to them, they saw it, tongues as of fire. They weren't literally tongues. They, it was fire, the presence of God, the presence of His Spirit. As God is often manifest tangibly through fire, He is pure. He is powerful. And so that's what they see. They literally see some kind of fire, the tongues of fire coming from heaven, representing God and His Spirit. And they were distributing themselves throughout the room and resting on the 120 believers who were there. So they heard something amazing. They saw something amazing. And then on the inside, they felt something amazing. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that amazing? So the Spirit of God comes down at just as Jesus had promised. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, uh, just before Jesus ascends. Look back one chapter. The apostles are saying, Jesus, is it now? Is it now? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to establish your kingdom? Have we entered the millennium? Are we here on heaven? Are the Old Testament promises going to be fulfilled? And Jesus said, you know what? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons and the epics of all these things in God's plan. But what you do need to keep in mind is be patient. And no, verse 5, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And just a few days later, this verse 5 was fulfilled right here. This is what's happening. This baptism of the Spirit of God that will never be repeated again. There will never be another Pentecost again. There will never be another Resurrection Sunday again. There will never be a Christmas again. These are one-time events in God's timetable. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All 120 people. That means the women were filled with the Spirit as well. Which is a beautiful thing. Men and women are made equally before God in His image. They have different roles, but they're made equally before God in His image. And the women of God are also filled with the Spirit on this occasion. And they all began to speak with other tongues. They all began to speak with other different kinds of languages is what that means. Now, they weren't necessarily speaking with tongues only in the upper room because they're going to go out in public and the people in public heard them speaking these other languages and were attracted to it and amazed by it. And so they began to gather till there was a crowd of 3,000 people listening to these 120 probably uneducated Galileans for the most part speaking the languages of the world to perfection. And the people who heard it, the Jews from all over the then known world are hearing their native language spoken by these 
people who shouldn't know these languages. That's what's going on here. They're speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Notice it's the Spirit of God that's enabling them to do it. They're not conjuring it up on their own through manipulation. Very important distinction. They're being led by the Spirit. Other tongues, there's that word for glosis, glosa, glossolalia. Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem because they were there uh, residing for the time of feast from Passover to Pentecost. Faithful Jews from all over these different countries there to be at the temple to worship God, to fulfill the sacrifices and the requirements of the Old Testament. They're still residing there in Jerusalem. They're from other countries. They are Jewish But they are from other nations, from other geography, from other ethnicity, from other languages. They're devout men. They love Yahweh. They love the Old Testament. Notice they're from every nation under heaven. That is the then known world in the Mediterranean basin. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. So these people from all over Jerusalem, heard the noise themselves. They came together. What in the world was that? And then they see Peter and the apostles and the 120 saints gathering together, probably somewhere by the temple. So there's this massive crowd of hundreds of possibly thousands of people gathering, believing Jews to see what in the world this noise is all about, what's going on. Gathered together, they were bewildered. They were amazed. They were in awe because they were each one of these Jews from all over the then known world was hearing the 120 disciples speak in their own language. So we know that some of these Jews were actually from Rome and they came all the way from Rome for the feast in Jerusalem. So maybe their native language was uh, a form of Roman, whether it was a Latin form or Italian or whatever historically their native language. And so when they get there and this is going on, they see one of these people in Jerusalem who are probably Galileans speaking a perfect language in their own language, the Italian language. Or it also says some of these Jews came up all the way from the north of Africa in Egypt. And maybe their native language was some kind of uh, ancient Egyptian language or some form of Coptic language. And they're hearing one of the disciples of Jesus speak their own language perfectly. How does this uneducated Galilean know Coptic language so perfectly? even with the accents and the nuances and the vocabulary. That is amazing. How is this happening? So that's why they were so bewildered, it says, hearing them speak in their own language. They weren't just babbling some inarticulate, untranslatable language. Uh, And they were amazed, verse 7, and they marveled, saying, Wow, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And these men came from the following five. They're, uh, and they're listed in five groupings, but from 15 different regions and possibly many more languages than 15. It could be dozens and dozens of languages represented because of the dialects within each region. These are huge regions. There were Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, the Arabian language, historically, whatever that was. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking not just gibberish, but something specific that is articulated, that gives glory to God, that edifies, that is instructive, exhortation, consolation, something objective and specific, divine revelation. What was at the end of verse 11? They were speaking about the mighty deeds of God and no doubt focusing and centering on the person of Jesus Christ and his work. That's the gift of speaking in tongues. There it is. And there is no other gift 
in the Bible. Because the Apostle Paul uses the same words, glosa, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And 1 Corinthians was written about the same time as the book of Acts. And by the way, Luke, an associate of Paul, wrote Acts. Paul, whoever his amanuensis or secretary was, wrote Corinthians. So he's using the same terms, used and understood in the same way. That's the way they were understood in that time. Uh, verse 12, and they continued in amazement and as they're standing around watching. They were perplexed. It was supernatural. They couldn't explain it because this was language that couldn't be learned or taught on the spot in such a short period of time. It had to be a work of God. It had to be a miracle. And so they are blown away at the end of verse 12. They ask, what does this mean? And there are various interpretations. Someone in verse 13 sarcastically says, well, others were mocking. Some were awed by God. And then there are others who were mocking. And they said, well, they are full of sweet wine. These guys are drunk, obviously. And it could be that somebody there didn't understand one of the languages being spoken. Maybe they didn't know Coptic. And so to them, Coptic just sounds like a bunch of gibberish. gibberish. It's like when you hear someone from a different area talking, you don't know it. It sounds odd to you if it's not translated or interpreted. That's why you need an interpreter for speaking in tongues if you don't know that language it's being spoken in. So speaking in tongues always has to be complemented by the gift of interpretation. So that is the foundational passage about speaking in tongues, what it is. And clearly in the book of Acts, uh, speaking in tongues is a known language. It is a real, discernible, translatable human language that someone is able to speak. For example, uh, if I was in the days of the apostle and I went to France to preach the gospel, I didn't take a French class. I don't know a stitch of French. Wee oui, wee oui is all I know. But I'm given an opportunity to preach the gospel to these French-speaking people and all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes upon me and I am just preaching away instantaneously in perfect French. That would be an example of the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, so let's go back now to 1 Corinthians 12. Now, let me give you the definition of speaking in tongues. <clears throat> the charismatic definition, by the way, would be uh, the ability... It is a spiritual gift given by the Spirit of God to every Christian who asks and believes hard enough to speak in an unknown gibberish as a secret prayer language directly to God in private and the only one who really understands that language is the Spirit of God and God Himself. Not even the speaker understands what is being said. I believe, based on 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts, the one who had the gift of tongues and spoke in the gift of tongues understood what they were saying. Even though I've never taken any French classes, I'm speaking French and I actually understand what I am speaking on the spot. So the biblical definition, I believe, is this. The supernatural ability to speak a recognizable human foreign language which had not been learned by natural and usual methods. Paul also says it is a sign gift the word sign is a synonym for a miracle, a miraculous gift to be a sign, to establish, to validate the ministry primarily of the apostles as they laid the foundation of the church. So it was a sign gift, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, and it was associated. Here's the interesting thing. As we see to the book of Acts being used, it is always associated with the ministry of the apostles. An apostle is almost always present. Acts chapter 2 was Peter the Apostles. Acts chapter 10, it's Peter and Cornelius and the Gentiles. Uh, Acts chapter 19, it's the Apostle Paul with the disciples of John the Baptist. So it's 
at least in the book of Acts, it's never happening apart from the ministry of the apostles. Which makes sense because it's a sign to validate their ministry. I also believe when someone spoke in tongues in the book of Acts or in the New Testament and it was interpreted, it was the equivalent of prophecy. It was the equivalent of new direct revelation. And Paul pretty much argues that in 1 Corinthians 12. If it was interpreted. So that's the definition. Uh, let's go on to number four, the history. Um, when I, From my own limited experience in the charismatic churches I was a part of, uh, a premium was put on speaking in tongues as like the main thing you needed to have and pursue. And it gave you a great and supernatural power uh, to deal with all things in life. So they made it sound normative in the Christian life and all of really biblical history. Let's say that's not true. Let's look at the history of speaking in tongues. In the Old Testament, does it ever occur? Well, Isaiah 28, verse 11, is the only place foreign languages or tongues is mentioned in reference to the New Testament gift. The Apostle Paul quotes first, uh, Isaiah 28, 11 in 1 Corinthians 14. And when he quotes, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 14, when Paul quotes Isaiah 28, 11, he's referring not to Babel, he's referring to a known language, the Assyrian language, the language that the Assyrians spoke when they came in in 722 and sacked northern, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. And also in 701, when they got to the gates of Jerusalem down by Judea. The language was a known language. It was the Assyrian language, a human language, once again, validating it's a known human language. That's the only time it is mentioned in the Old Testament. None of the Old Testament prophets spoke in tongues. They never prayed in tongues. They were never uh, told that we would speak in tongues. It is non-existent. It does not occur. It is a New Testament spiritual gift given after the time of Pentecost. How about in the Gospels? Do we ever see speaking in tongues in the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? No, non-existent, not there. The apostles never spoke in tongues in the Gospels. Believers didn't speak in tongues in the Gospels. Jesus did not speak in tongues in the Gospels. Jesus never spoke in tongues while he was on earth. Unless you are a charismatic or Bible teacher or theologian, and they argue routinely and regularly that Jesus actually did speak in tongues. The best and clearest example they can come up with is John chapter 11, verse 14, at the resurrection of Lazarus. And just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it says, the text says, Jesus groaned in his spirit. And then they tell us, well, that groaning was speaking in tongues. It was a untranslatable, literal, audible, and he spoke in tongues, and that helped him raise Lazarus from the dead. I am not kidding you. This is what they seriously believe. This is what they teach dogmatically for those who hold that position. And I would just say that in John eleven fourteen, when it says Jesus groaned in his spirit, uh, it may not even have been audible. He was groaning out of grief like someone might do when a beloved one dies and you can't articulate the sorrow that you have. That wasn't speaking in tongues. That's the only passage they used to try to establish that Jesus spoke in tongues. But Jesus did not speak in tongues. So uh, it doesn't exist in the Gospels. And then in the rest of the New Testament, it's only those four passages that we mention. On letter C in the New Testament... Uh, those who believe in speaking in tongues for today will argue that Romans chapter 8, verse 26 refers to speaking in tongues. Romans 8, 26. It's actually one of their main passages they go to, so I'm going to go ahead and look at it. And if you could look at it with me. Because when they explain it, sometimes people are convinced, yeah, that's that sounds credible. Um, maybe they've got a good precedent and an exegetical case here for speaking in tongues. And... Um, you got to look at Romans 8, 6, 18 and following where it talks about we're under a curse in this world. Creation groans, verse 22. 
Romans 8.22, because God has cursed planet Earth, it says all of creation groans. It groans. That's not speaking in tongues. But in verse 26, and in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. And they say that, see, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. Jesus said that. You don't know how to pray as you ought to pray, so... God wants to help you out, so he's going to have the Spirit speak, intercede for you. He literally, it's, they say, uh, this form of prayer, speaking in tongues as a prayer language, uh, bypasses your mind and it goes straight from your heart, bypasses your mind straight to the heart of God. So you, that's why you don't understand it. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit, they say, also helps our weakness, and we do not know how to pray as we should, Paul says. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, intercedes for us. See, there it is. There's the Holy Spirit praying. So when you're speaking in tongues in a private prayer language, they say it's actually the Holy Spirit who's praying through you to the Father on your behalf. And it's inarticulate, and it's not a translatable known human language. It's a groaning kind of a sound. That's why it sounds funny, like that kind of thing, because the word groaning there, verse 26. Groaning. The problem is... uh, when you're speaking in tongues, it's supposed to be audible because that's what the terminology means. When you speak in tongues, you're speaking. It's not just in your head. It's out loud. It is audible. And at the end of verse 26, Paul says, this groaning happens that's too deep for words. It could be a silent groaning in your heart out of sorrow. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that would be their theological explanation. This passage is the main passage they use to say the Spirit intercedes for you, he prays for you, he knows what you are saying, what you need, even though you do not. So uh, that's where they would get a New Testament passage to establish this idea of a private prayer language. As a matter of fact, today, and this hasn't always been true, but it's developed into this. Today in charismatic circles of those who believe in speaking in tongues, They believe in two kinds of speaking in tongues. There's the kind of tongues in Acts chapter 2 that they would agree, many would say, that that's true. Those are human languages. But in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you've got to understand, that's totally different. That's a different kind of speaking in tongues. So there's two kinds. A kind that's public, translatable, known languages. And then there's the private kind of speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that's not a human language. It's Romans 8 kind of language it's untranslatable it's directly from your soul to god in heaven and it can't be interpreted or understood and you don't even understand what you're saying so that's their belief that's what i was taught that's what i actually believed as a young 19 and 20 year old for a while so that's an important distinction to keep in mind so let's go on to and then finally point d well what about in history church history uh, it's just a fact. At the end of the first century, when all the apostles died out, there is no reliable record of any Christians or churches speaking in tongues on a regular basis. It would pop up here and there, like with the Montanist movement, they say, early on in the second or third century. But that was a heretical movement. But pretty much from the end of the first century all the way until up through the 1800s. So for 1800 years consistently, there is no example, there is no existence of churches and Christians speaking in tongues. And many charismatics are honest about that, and they say that's true. It didn't exist. But that's why Acts chapter 2 and the prophecy of Joel says that in the latter days, 1901, 1904, and following, in the latter days, God will rain down His Spirit again for another 
Pentecost. And then, yes, that's why for 1,800 years there was no speaking in tongues because God's Spirit was somewhat being restrained, withheld from his people, but now he's pouring it out again. So they really don't have a problem with saying, yeah, it didn't exist for 1,800 years. That's not persuasive because they say that God promised a latter reign where he would do it again like he did in the days of the apostles. But just so you know, it never resurrected again until the early 1900s. And even when it started in the early 1900s with Charles Parham, I already talked about that, it wasn't speaking in tongues in a known language. It was gibberish. It was babble. Now, the scary thing about that, if you study other religions of the world, including Mormonism, Mormonism has a statement of faith. It's very short. And it's always on a little card in the Book of Mormon when the Mormon missionaries come around. And if you open it up and read it, one of the cardinal statements of faith of Mormonism is that they believe in speaking in tongues. And the kind of speaking in tongues they believe in is gibberish. And that came right out of paganism. Paganism has had a form of speaking in tongues that's gibberish literally for thousands of years, probably going back all the way to the book of Genesis, Nimrod. So that's a yellow or red flag in terms of what's going on there. Number, number five, who are the users of speaking in tongues? These are legitimate users in the Bible. Uh, those who have the gift of tongues, only those with the gift. That's clear. First Corinthians 1230. Not everyone speaks in tongues, said Paul, emphatically. So you can't go around and tell Christians, all of you need to speak in tongues so that you'll be filled with the Spirit. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. That is misleading. That's actually dangerous. So the users are only those who have the gift. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it's not those who ask for it. It's as God wills. He's the one that distributes and gives the gifts as he wills. So it's only those with the gift. It was the apostles. I believe probably all the apostles probably had the gift. The apostle Paul had the gift more than anybody. He said that. Um, in Acts chapter 2, it was 120 people who had the gift in the midst of 3,000 that got saved. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius received the gift. He was a Gentile and got saved, and then he was able to speak in tongues or a language. And it says that his uh, little circle of family and select friends also spoke in tongues. So a relatively small group. And then in Acts 19, uh, these 12 apostles or disciples of John the Baptist, when Paul gave them the fullness of the gospel, the Spirit of God came down upon them, and they also began to speak in other languages. So uh, they also spoke. These were the users in the New Testament, and it's limited to that. The point is it's not every Christian. Number seven, or six, what is the purpose of speaking in tongues? Um, it's The purpose of speaking in tongues is the purpose of every spiritual gift, to edify the church body. Paul says it is not for self-edification. That is self-centered. That is selfish. That's why this private prayer language thing doesn't work as a spiritual gift because every single spiritual gift is given to believers to edify the corporate body, not to be serving self. So the purpose is to edify the church. Uh, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians twelve seven to promote the common good. Acts chapter 2 displays that using spiritual gifts, including speaking in tongues, was to promote unity in the body. Isn't that ironic? God used the gift of speaking in tongues to unify a very diverse believing Christian world in Acts chapter 2 where believers are from all over the, the known world and they are separated and divided and segregated by their geography, by their nationality, by their language, by their culture, by their gender, and that God unifies all of them with this supernatural gift of speaking in tongues that bypasses the curse of the Tower of Babel 
and unifies the church there on the day of Pentecost. Amazing. And that, that's consistent with the spiritual gift. It is to promote unity in the church. And how ironic that today in the last 50 years, the most divisive issue in the believing church around the world has been this issue of speaking in tongues. The very opposite of what God wanted and designed. It's a good lesson for us. Regardless of your view of speaking in tongues, whether you, when you came in here or when you leave, the takeaway, the agenda item, the action item number one is don't go out and pick a fight with another Christian about speaking in tongues. That's the exact opposite of what God wants. Pursue love and the preservation of unity. So that needs to stop. Uh, promote unity and also to validate the apostles because it was called a sign gift in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Also, another purpose for speaking in tongues was to provide information, to provide information to other people. So that Paul says three terms. So that when they hear the speaking in tongues interpreted, they might benefit through the exhortation, the consolation, that's encouragement, and the edification that can only come through verbal information and direct revelation and new information that God is giving. Someone in their closet speaking in an unknown babble to themselves is not providing those three things of new information to God's people to help them grow in their knowledge of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14. That's a purpose, to provide information. Let's go on. What is the priority of in, in spiritual gifts with respect to speaking in tongues? Well, speaking in tongues is not the priority. It's not the gift to be had. It's not the best and showiest gift of all. Paul's going to argue just the opposite. And so Paul has to rebuke them. And he says, you know what? You guys are making such a big deal and a stink and causing so much division about the fact that some of you speak in tongues and it's showy and it's high profile and you're drawing attention to yourself. That is the exact opposite of God's will. That is totally contrary to the greatest priority. The greatest priority, 1 Corinthians 13, is love, right? People, Christians who claim to follow Christ... If I know all the languages of humankind and even the, yea, verily the languages of the angels themselves, but I have not love, I am nothing. Quit abusing your gifts. What is the gift of speaking in the tongues of angels? We'll find out when we look at verse 1 of chapter 13. But the priority is love. That's just priority number one. When you're loving as Christians, the world's going to look on you and know that you belong to me, right? It, it trumps everything. Love trumps everything. True love, love in accordance with truth. So love is a greater priority than speaking in tongues. Love is a greater priority than how you use your gifts or which gift you have. And then also with respect to the gifts themselves, prophecy is has priority over speaking in tongues. Paul says that clearly. And he's going to argue that. You know, I speak tongues more than all of you, said Paul. But if you speak in tongues and it's not translated and it doesn't benefit anybody, that's a total waste of time. I'd rather have you speak in prophecy in a known language so that the people might be edified. I'd rather speak in just five intelligible words than hundreds and thousands of words in a tongue that can't be understood. Seek after the greater gifts. He said that. Seek after the greater gifts that provide edification for more people. And so what he was saying is that prophecy was greater than speaking in tongues. As a matter of fact, the two times that tongues is put in a list by Paul, guess what's last? Tongues. Order of priority. So the priority is love. And then prophecy and others. Uh, number eight, what are the abuses? Well, it has been abused through time, especially in the last 50 years, especially by people who claim to be Bible teachers. Uh, some are mistaken, I believe, 
out of ignorance, like I was for two years. I didn't have malice. I wasn't trying to deceive people. I believed in speaking in tongues. I believed I had the gift for two days. Uh, I believed others had it for longer. And I was a true believer. I was a born-again believer. I was part of the body of Christ. I believed in the true gospel. So keep that in mind. But it has been abused. And here, here are the ways that speaking in tongues is abused. There's a lot of them. You might not even want to try to write these down, but listen carefully. I got this from the, from being on the inside. These are the common things that are said and taught about speaking in tongues. Don't do this. Don't fall for it. Match it up against scripture. The abuses. Uh, those who teach in speaking in tongues manipulate it by virtue of its obscurity. What do I mean by that? There is not a lot of information in detail about speaking in tongues. There just isn't. And this is a common trait of false teachers. They'll take something that is obscure or uh, we don't have a whole lot of information and then they come up with some esoteric explanation that only they know and have and they become an authority on that truth. Like the baptism of the dead. What is it? I have no idea what it is. But people have come up with entire doctrines on that and speaking in tongues is obscure in terms of the data we have. There's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot I don't know about speaking in tongues. And people have manipulated that uh, to feel like they have power and authority on the topic and other people acquiesce and, oh, he must know more than me. Uh, another abuse, um, saying that speaking in tongues is babbling and not a language, gibberish and not a language. Another abuse, uh, twisting Bible passage to make their case when clearly it's not referring to speaking in tongues. Romans 8.26 John 11, Jesus, scripture twisting. Uh, another abuse, saying that speaking in tongues is for doing it in private as a prayer language to edify yourself. It's the exact opposite of what Paul said gifts are for. Another abuse, have doing it with no interpreter. I see You see that all the time in these churches. You can turn on the television and see it. Paul said, don't do that. It's an abuse. Um, saying that all Christians should do it. That's an abuse. Categorically wrong. Saying that you just need to ask for it and you'll get it. That's wrong. Doing it in a disorderly manner. See that all the time. Turn on YouTube again. See all over the place. Disorderly stuff. Paul condemns that. That is wrong. Saying that speaking in tongues is synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. That is wrong. Being filled with the Spirit. The mark of being filled with the Spirit is not evidenced through speaking in tongues. The mark of being filled with the, uh, the Spirit is obedience. To say anything else abuses the truth. To say that speaking in tongues is synonymous with baptism of the Holy Spirit is wrong. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we're going to look at it. Uh, when you got saved, you were baptized, and the Holy Spirit only happens one time. Uh, to say that a, someone who's a Christian doesn't have the Holy Spirit because they haven't received the gift of tongues is wrong. That's what they did to me. I was already a Christian. I knew it. And then, then I'm told, well, you don't have the Holy Spirit because you don't speak in tongues. And then I feel like, wow, I, I'm a have-not. That's wrong. Saying that speaking in tongues is a prayer language, a prayer, prayer, prayer language, that is wrong. To say that speaking in tongues is to be exalted over other spiritual gifts, that is wrong. Saying that speaking in tongues in a private way gives you some kind of special power and privilege before God, that is wrong. Saying that there are two kinds of speaking in tongues, one in Acts chapter 2 and a different one in 1 Corinthians, that is wrong. Doing speaking in tongues solely based on emotion, that is wrong. Love the Lord your God with all your mind in accordance with truth. 
Speaking in tongues based on experience, that is wrong. Speaking in tongues or validating it or allowing others to do it simply on the word hearsay, that is wrong. This is very common. You see it on well-known evangelicals that we respect and admire, Bible teachers, where they will say, well, I'm uh, cautious, not certain, whatever, how they say it. I don't speak in the gift of tongues, but it could be that others do because I heard about a missionary through a friend of a friend of a friend. And when that missionary was out in Africa, uh, they began to speak in tongues amazingly and the whole crowd got saved. And then as a result, they've got an entire theology based on hearsay from five different people. We don't base our theology on the uncertainty of hearsay. We base our theology based on the clarity of Scripture. End of story. That's dangerous. We don't use theoretical examples as truth. Uh, ignoring, ignoring history is dangerous, I think, and abuse. Ignoring uh, those who... Oh, it's pagan use of it is an abuse. Ignoring those who promote it today, I think, is an abuse or can be. Look at who's promoting it. False teachers, many of them. Uh, other things we need to be leery of when we hear it. Many charismatics will come back to defend it and say, well, you don't believe in speaking in tongues, but God can do anything. Now, that sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? It's kind of intimidating. Oh, yeah, you're right. God can do anything. Therefore, speaking in tongues is true. No, well, God can't do anything. God doesn't sin. He won't sin. He can't sin. Won't do anything contrary to his nature. God is not going to destroy the world in a flood. He's bound himself by his word. He can't use that as a baseline argument. Well, God can do anything. Oh, okay, therefore, speaking in tongues is okay. Or saying, well, you don't believe in the gifts. No, yeah, I do. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit. No, yeah, I do. You don't believe in tongues. Mm, yeah, I do. Or, assuming those who do it... Oh, yeah, and then a counter-argument for the rest of us like me. An abuse. Uh, assuming those who do it aren't saved. That's a danger. Probably for most of us to keep in mind. Being judgmental. Oh, they're in a charismatic church. Therefore, oh, we write them off. They're not a part of the body of Christ. They're not Christians. We have no need for them. Mm, that's not true. That's horrible. Let's go on to number nine, the takeaway in light of that. What is the takeaway in all of this? We just scratched the surface. Uh, priorities. Pursue love. Can I get an amen? Pursue love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. And unity among the body of Christ. Truth. Uh, love in the truth. Those are the priorities. Be open to talk about the issue. It's a theological issue. Anybody should be willing, if you are a Christian, to, to talk through if you have a disagreement about any theological issue. Oh, you believe in infant baptism? I don't. Hey, let's talk about it. Let's search the Scriptures together. Iron sharpens iron, right? Oh, you speak in tongues? How come? Oh, let's talk about it. Let's search the Scriptures together. Let's be prayerful. We don't have to come up with an agreement today. Let's let God be our teacher. So be open to talk biblically, not about experience, not about your culture, the way you were raised, your emotions. Let's look to God's Scripture. Uh, third point, let's be patient with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ of people who have different opinions about us on different matters. Did you know that there's not one person in here that agrees with you on, any, on everything? Yeah, amen. That's a, a person secure in his convictions. Amen. That is so true. We're all growing, aren't we? And then finally... Um, this is kind of a rebuke for all of us. Examine areas of your life that need changing, tweaking, and fine-tuning even in your theology. And some of you might be thinking, huh, my theology is perfect. I've got a MacArthur Study Bible. I go to GBF. 
or whatever you've eaten. Mm, wrong answer. We all see through a glass dimly. You know what that means? None of us knows everything. All of us are still growing. I've, God's been fine-tuning and changing a lot of my beliefs over the years. Not the gospel. That's rock solid. There's only one gospel. But in other areas. I've even morphed and changed on my view of speaking in tongues in terms of the theology from what I originally believed to how it plays out, to how it applies to other people, whether they're believers or not, how I interact with them, what the common bond of fellowship is, how should I treat them, how should I teach this topic, how should I relate. So things are always changing and growing, hopefully in conformity with the truth of God's word and the model of Jesus Christ. So examine your own theology, be willing to vet it to scripture, be willing to be open, instructed by the Holy Spirit and others if you need to change. We all need to do that. We are all growing by God's grace. And with that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, again, thank you for this day and the opportunity to meet with the saints, to worship you, to look to your word, and to even talk about a, a controversial topic. And yet you address this topic with your truth. God, we are finite. We are fallen. We serve self by inclination, and you need to override all of that with your indwelling Holy Spirit, the objective truth of your word, the counsel and rebuke and instruction of others, the softening through prayer. God, we need your help. Keep us humble. Keep us teachable. Thank you for the clarity and the rock-solid foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the only thing that gives power for salvation. And I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us continue to grow. And with issues like this, God, help us at GBF to be gracious, to be teachable, to be humble, to pursue the truth as we pursue unity as well as we know it reflects you to the rest of the world. And we just pray that you'd be glorified through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.